Uh, please open your Bibles to that passage uh, we read together earlier, uh, Psalm 80. Somebody said these flowers were for me on my first day. I don't think that's true. Um, Psalm 80. Uh, but before we uh, hear from God's words uh, in this psalm, uh, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, please would you open our eyes that we may, we may behold uh, wondrous things out of your law and out of your word. Amen. Uh, surely uh, one of uh, Dundee's most uh, famous uh, politicians, uh, one of Dundee's most famous uh, members of parliament, uh, can be none other than that one that would later go on to become uh, Prime Minister uh, and would lead, uh, Dun or would lead Britain uh, through the Second World War, um, talking about none other than Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, he's famous for, for lots of things, but perhaps most notably he's known for his, uh, his rousing speeches and his uh, quick uh, turns of phrase and in, uh, in 2017, uh, a film was produced about the man uh, that was named after one of these phrases that he coined. Uh, that film was called Darkest R. Darkest R. It was a, it was a reference uh, to how uh, Winston Churchill referred to that period um, after the evacuation at Dunkirk, uh, where France had fallen Britain was the only uh, country left fighting in Europe. And every day, uh, British people lived uh, at fear of, uh, of invasion. Darkest hour. And friends, this morning, that as we look at uh, this passage, this psalm uh, together, the writer, uh, Asaph, and uh, the people of Israel, they are in uh, a darkest hour having already seen uh, the kingdom split into two halves, uh, the north and the south. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, is now under threat uh, from the surrounding nations. And as we know uh, from reading later in scripture, it will eventually be, be conquered and its people taken away uh, into exile. My prayer this morning is that as we uh, look at this psalm, that it can be a, a model of how uh, to pray in the darkest hours and can serve to us as a, as a reminder of, of what God is like, who he is, uh, and of how, how we can know that he will be good uh, in the future. This psalm contains two, two types of prayers. Uh, there's prayers of lamentation, uh, and there's prayers of, of petition, so there, there's weeping, uh, but there's also asking. And we're going to consider it together this morning in two sections. Um, firstly, the, as prayer to the shepherd, and then secondly, as, as prayer uh, to the gardener. In each of these sections, we'll look at the lamenting and the asking, prayer to the shepherd, prayer to the gardener. So uh, firstly, prayer to the shepherd. Uh, 
prayer to the shepherds. Uh, only yesterday, I was up uh, a mountain uh, with some friends. Uh, I'm sure some of you will know it, if not from personal experience, maybe from a postcard. Um, and I'm sorry to the, to the Gaelic speakers in the room, the mountain is called Bucolet of Moor, uh, which I'm reliably told means the great shepherd uh, of Etiv. Well, as we start this psalm, Asaph is speaking not to a mountain, uh, but to another great shepherd. And he wants him to listen to him. The section begins in verse 1 with asking God, what does it say to, to give ear, to listen? The psalmist is not saying that, that God is deaf, that he can't hear. Uh, we use this language every day, um, I think, in conversation. Uh, you know someone is, is hearing you, but you will say something like, listen to me, or uh, do you hear me? Asaph, therefore, uses this language and then addresses God uh, in two different ways. Firstly, he calls him the shepherd of Israel. This is language commonly employed throughout the Psalms and indeed uh, throughout all of Scripture. But do you see how it's linked uh, in verse 1 to one person in particular? A name we know well. It's linked to leading Joseph like a flock. Now, clearly, he's not just referring to a single person named Joseph, but here Joseph uh, represents uh, the whole of Israel, a flock. And Joseph was that, was that favored son of Jacob, wasn't he? And you remember how as, as Jacob himself uh, was nearing death, he was able to confess that God had been his shepherd uh, his whole life long. And there on his deathbed, um, Jacob would then bless each of his children one by one uh, by name. And when he comes uh, to Joseph, his special emphasis for him is that Joseph would know God as his shepherd. And so the psalmist picks up the same imagery here, pleading to the God who leads, who protects, and who provides for his people like a shepherd. As well as shepherd imagery, uh, we also secondly have uh, temple imagery. Look at the second half uh, of verse 1 in your Bible. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. This is speaking of the, the cherubim uh, sculpted uh, to be placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, situated in that most holy place uh, in the temple. Here, uh, the place where the cherubim are is the place where God himself uh, in Exodus, in Exodus 25, very especially designates as a place where he would meet with the people of Israel. So as the psalmist prays to God, he's using language about God, which God himself has used to reveal himself. His prayer is saturated with uh, the history of God's self-revelation, but also serves to remind himself of who God is like or what God is like. And right from the get-go uh, in this psalm, um, I want us to see something that we can learn, uh, something which I hope will be uh, of help to you 
And I want it to be of help to you in your, in your prayer life. As you pray, pray like Asaph. Uh, pray like the psalmist. Pray with who God is in mind. And that will shape how you pray. Lord, you are the creator of the universe. So nothing's too big for you. God, you are our Father. So I can pray to you about, about anything. Father, you have promised to hear your people when they pray. Here is my request before you. And what is the request of this psalm? What is the request of Asaph? Well, that's verses uh, two and three. Let's, let's read it again together. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What is the repeated request of Asaph? He prays for salvation. He prays to be saved. And in the immediate context of this prayer, he is praying to be saved from his enemies, from those nations surrounding Israel, who seek to destroy them. But as we've already seen from uh, the leading of the shepherd and uh, the presence above the cherubim, there is a spiritual element to this as well. Regardless, the way in which this salvation comes is the same. It is by a manifestation of God's face. Let your face shine cries the psalmist. This is a prayer which is repeated throughout the psalm as Asaph hearkens back to the ironic blessing of the wilderness wanderings. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. We all know that the look on someone's face can speak a thousand words, no less than a mother to a son who's misbehaved. Maybe that was just me. But much more than that, we know the look of of joy or look of delight. Uh, Your face, uh, when you've not seen a friend in a long time and they come through the door. The face of of a child when they see their parent at the school gate. Or a bride walking down the aisle and she sees the groom. These faces, these faces capture more than than words can say. And the psalmist is calling for God to look on his people with favor and blessing so that they might be saved. But as well as a prayer for God's face to shine, Asaph is asking for God to do something to our faces. That phrase at the start of verse 3 restore us. It also has within it the idea of asking God to turn us towards him. So restore us, O God, becomes what we just sang. Turn us again towards you, O God. So in this prayer for salvation, there's really a double turning. 
God's face shines on his people and his people turn towards him. As the psalm goes on, the asking for for blessing that we've seen at the start then becomes a questioning in verse 4 as the psalmist transitions from a prayer of petition to a prayer of, of lamentation. How long? How long can be an easy question when you know the answer. How long till dinner's ready? Just look at the timer on the oven. How long till we get there? Just check on your phone. How long could be an easy question when you know the answer, but it can also be uh, the hardest question. And in the hospital where I worked previously, that became all too real. How long until I see the doctor? How long until I get my test results? How long do I have left? In this section of the passage, Asaph is firmly in the camp of difficult questions. How long? What does it say in verse 4? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Some say this is God's anger while his people are praying. God's anger at the same time as his people are praying. But others say this is, this is evidence that there are some prayers, there are some ways of praying that make God angry. Prayers that are, that are selfish or greedy or unjust. Prayers like this are, are, not, are not pleasing to God. Whatever it may be, the psalmist and the people, they're clearly, they're clearly struggling, aren't they? It's not the, it's not the question of, a, of an impatient child, it's but, but it's the wrestling of one whose, whose, hope, whose hope has been deferred, whose heart is sick with waiting. Look at the sorrows being experienced by the people of Israel here. Crying has become the food and drink. The bread is is dipped in tears. The cup is full of tears too. There's no time of day that's without grief. As well as as the tears of the psalmist, There's also the the taunts of the enemies. They laugh among themselves at the plight of the people of Israel, echoing, no doubt, the words of the previous psalm, Psalm 79, where is their God? A mocking foe, a weeping nation, an angry God, as one has described it, it is a trilogy of woe. And I would wager in a, in a room this size, this many people, most of us have known times like this. Days when the tears don't seem to stop. Times when 
prayers to God seem to go unanswered. These can be the darkest hours we will ever know. I don't want to miss the focus of the psalmist in this psalm. Yes, there is a personal element, but, but this is a national tragedy, and he is praying on a national level. This is a nation, once, once blessed of God, brought low, scorned by our enemies, and in desperate need of God's face to turn to them again. My friends, you do not need me to spell it out this morning. When it comes to Scotland, this land once blessed of God, Scotland has the same urgent need today. We need the Lord to make his face shine upon us. We need him to turn us again towards him. Because the greatest need in Scotland today is the same need as Israel had back then. Scotland needs salvation. And praise God that he has provided a means of that salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows who knew all too well the bread of tears. He was the object of, of mocking and laughter from those who hated him. He drank not a cup of tears, but a bitter cup of God's wrath. And friends, he drank it for you, that you might be saved. So this morning, look on the face of the one who has come to save, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and see in his face the blessing that you need and that this nation needs. We've looked at the first half of this psalm and uh, the prayer to the shepherd. Let's look now at the, the second half, a uh, prayer to the gardener, prayer to the gardener. If you've, been, if you've been speaking to me or speaking to Sarah in the last uh, couple of months, you'll know uh, the house we live in now has uh, a garden. We have never had a garden before and we don't really know what we're doing. Uh, we, we've planted lots of veg in a patch, and all we have to show for it is a handful of radishes. Uh, there's been lots of pruning going on, but it still looks like a jungle coming around us. And the weeding, oh my goodness, the weeding is a battle with only one winner. Uh, I'll be looking for advice from those more experienced after the service. But despite all the effort, all the work we put in, uh, we do love our garden. We love the garden. And if you look at verse 8, you see someone who loves their garden. God has prepared a garden, a vineyard really. The ground has been cleared. He's planted a vine from out of Egypt. This is, of course, an allusion to, to what, I mean, it's Israel, isn't it? It's obvious to the Israel and to the claiming of the land of Canaan, that promised land. That much is obvious, and, and you can see as the verses go on that the prosperity of Israel in the land, 
as it grows and it spreads from the Mediterranean to the river Euphrates. But again, the vine, it's not just a general picture, but it is a special image of one Israelite family in particular, or should I say one Israelite person, someone we've thought about already this morning, it's Joseph. Joseph, again, as he's being blessed by his father, Jacob, on his deathbed, he is not just encouraged to know God as his shepherd, but Joseph is also called a vine, a fruitful vine, uh, growing up by a spring whose branches scale up the wall. So do you get the picture here? Israel uh, is a vine in a garden with branches growing and spreading upwards and outwards. And yet we come to verses 12 and 13, and we find the same deep kind of questioning we've had already in the psalm. Why? Why have you broken the walls and left it open and exposed? You can understand this as questioning, can't you? I mean, if you or someone you know had uh, dug a garden, prepared the ground, planted a precious plant in the middle of it, but then allowed wild boars and, and insects to, to ravage it, you would be asking, why? This is the question of the psalmist. Why have you let Israel come to destruction? Well, the answer isn't, isn't given to Asaph here in this psalm. And in a sense, that makes his prayer going forward all the more remarkable. But briefly, for us today, the answer to why can be found in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah lived during the last years of the northern kingdom, that kingdom that Asaph is, is praying about. And in Isaiah chapter 5, the opening seven verses, we read the song of the vineyard. If you have a, a Bible, you can keep a thumb in Psalm 80 and, and flick to Isaiah 5. I'll not read the, the passage fully, but simply glancing at these opening verses of Isaiah 5, the parallels are, are obvious. A vineyard planted in a fertile place, the land is cleared, nothing more could be done for the vineyard, and yet no good fruit comes from it. And the answer to the question why comes in verse 7 in Isaiah 5. God looks for justice and finds bloodshed. He looks for righteousness. He finds only cries of distress. Friends, this morning, Israel was being judged for their sins. Injustice and rebellion are rife in the land. And judgment for breaking God's law had been promised, just as blessing for obedience had been promised too. But the psalmist doesn't lose hope, does he? 
psalm does not end with a prayer of lamentation, but it ends with God, or with Asaph, asking for God's blessing on the land. Look at verse 14. What kind of language does he use again for God's favor? He is again asking for God to do something. Look at the words throughout the verse. Turn again. Look down. See. Have regard for this vine. The psalmist wants God's face to turn towards the plight that people are going through. He has the same petition in verse 19 as he's had throughout the psalm. Restore us. Turn us again towards you. And let your face shine with blessing on us. How does Asaph think he's going to get this blessing? How does he pray? Well, he doesn't recite some magic words. He doesn't point to all the good things that he's done in the past. Who does he point the gardener to? He points the gardener to his, to his son. Did you notice that language? throughout that last section. And I know some of us who, who love our plants dearly, we look at them like children. Uh, we put our house plants in the bath to water them. Um, and whenever one has a new leaf, it's like a, it's like a new word for a child. It's beautiful. But this isn't like this. The language from the plant, it transitions into language of a son. Look at verse 15 again. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. And again in verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So what is Asaph talking about? This son of man this man at God's right hand. Well, we could get bogged down in this, talking about whether this represents Israel as a whole, as a people that God had adopted to himself as children, or if this only refers to the king of the nation, uh, to that one in the line of David that God had promised would always be on the throne. But surely, friends, this morning you can see that the psalmist perhaps maybe only saw in a blur or in a clouded way. As Asaph pleads the name of the son in prayer, can you see the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember that verse in, in, in Hebrews? That question asked by the writer there, to which of the angels did God say, sit at my right hand. Who is at the right hand of God but the Son of Man himself, that tender plant like a root out of dry ground who had no form or, or majesty that we should desire him. Friends, when we take the example of Asaph, when we pray like the psalmist for the Lord to bless us and to bless our land, 
we need to pray like he did, pleading the name of the Son. We need to ask God to turn to us again, for God to make his face shine upon us. But we need to ask him to do it with the right motives, for the right reasons. We need to ask God to turn and look and see, not so that we have a comfortable life, or that we have an easy ride. We need to ask so that the name of his son might be glorified. We want to see God's name honored in this country again. We want to see people turning to him to be saved. And we want it to happen so that Jesus is is worshipped and magnified. So the question this morning is simple. Will you turn to him? Will you look to God in prayer, asking him to restore us and to shine his face upon us? Perhaps for the first time, will you ask God to save you? My prayer this morning is that you will, and that we will all seek God's face more and more to see Christ's name made great in our land. Let's pray for that together just now. Let's pray.